everyone, I'm Bia, and welcome back to Cardiac Reader for Teens. For those of you who might not be familiar with Cardiac Reader for Teens, this is a place where teens come together with other teens to learn about spiritist teachings and topics in a way that relates more to us as teenagers in today's society and gets us a better understanding than we might get from just reading a book by ourselves or listening to adults lecture. For months now, we have been going through the Spirits book. It might even be almost a year. We've been going through the Spirits book together, reading it page by page, word by word, question by question, to make sure we understand it so that later on we can dive into these questions even deeper and learn even more about these topics. And right now it's just like an introduction. We're getting an introduction to all these topics so that we can t continue to learn about them. So last week, we left off in the middle of a section that was talking about funerals and talking about how we commemorate the dead. So like when a loved one dies, let's say, like when someone in your family dies and we're still here in the corporal earth and the corporal world and we are, we have a funeral or there's certain practices of how to commemorate them, of how to, like some cultures have traditions and there's certain things, certain types of people do to commemorate their loved ones after they die. So we were talking about this topic and we were kind of in the middle of it. So if you did miss last week's, it's good to go back to it and catch up so that you get the full section. So we left off on question 322. Do forgotten spirits, who graves are not visited by anyone, come despite the fact and feeling, despite the that fact and feel troubled and not seeing any friends remembering them. So spirits who were forgotten, they're saying. So when no one visits their grave, do they go to their grave and do they feel sad because their friends aren't remembering them? And the spirits answered, what is the earth to, de to them? They are only linked to it by the heart. If no one loves them no longer, there is nothing that can make the spirit feel connected to the earth. They have the whole universe before them. So what they're saying here is that the once the spirit is in the spirit world again, there's nothing that's holding them to earth except for their heart, except for when they look back and think, oh wow, those are my loved, I love those people, even if it was just in one existence, or maybe it was in several existences. And they realize, like, oh, wow, I really like those people. I miss them. So it's like their heart, those emotions, is the only thing keeping them to the earth. But forgotten spirits who don't have these loved ones behind, there's no one, there's no one that visits their grave. If they don't have this kind of love on earth, then there's nothing holding them there because they don't have those loving emotions holding them there. So they're just kind of free and they have the whole universe and they're not really connected to the earth. Question 323. Does a visit made to its grave provide more satisfaction to a spirit than a prayer made on its behalf in someone's home? So they're saying, so what is better to go to the person's grave and visit them or just saying a prayer at home? And the spirits answered, a visit to its grave is a way of showing that one is thinking of the absent spirit. It is the exteriorization of a thought. So it's like 
That was a big word. So basically it's just saying like putting your thoughts into actions. You're doing a physical thing. You're going to the grave to show that you care about the person and you miss them. And the spirits answered, continuing on. They said, I have already told you that it is the prior that blesses the act of remembering. The place itself is of little importance. It's the memory that comes from the heart. So what they're saying is that they already told us, right? That the prior, that's, that's the best part. Going to the grave shows, okay, you're showing it. You're showing that you did the action. You went to the place. But now, no matter where you are, praying is what keeps those memories alive. It keeps, it shows them that you're remembering them, that you're, that you still love them. Question 324. Do the spirits of individuals who are to be honored with statues or monuments attend the inauguration and watch them with pleasure? So spirits who are going to be honored. So someone very prestigious. Like think about like when George Washington died. Of course, lots and lots of memorials were made for him and still are being made for him. So do they go to watch? Do they go and see? See, wow, this is for me. So what do, what do they think about this? And the spirits answered. Many watch them when they can, but they are less sensitive to the honors paid to them than the memories. So many of them, they think, okay, yeah, if they're commemorating me, I want to go see. I want to experience it too. So they do go and watch. But what's more, but they're more attached to the memories and the feelings, not just watching a statue, not just that honor, but they really want people who have true memories of them and true, and are really remembering them, not just a statue honoring them. Question 325. Where does the desire come from where certain persons wish to be buried in one place rather than another? Do they return to be with more satisfaction after death? And is the importance given to a physical thing a sign of a spirit's impure nature? So they're saying here, so there's a couple questions here. So first they're saying, some people, they like, let's say before they died, like in their will, they left, I want to be buried here or here or there. And they kind of set it out. So where does this come from, this desire to be in one place or in this place or a certain cemetery or to be cremated? There's so many different ways. So what, what does that have, to, where does that come into play is what they're asking. And they're also asking is, do they feel happier when you actually follow through and when they're actually buried where they want to be? Do, does it matter to them at all? Or are they kind of indifferent or do they actually feel a lot better? And also they said, so, but if they're, so if they're giving in to such a physical thing, then that means that they're kind of impure, right? Because they're attached to this phys physical matter. So let's see what the spirit's answer. A spirit's affection for certain places is a sign of moral impurities. So right there, they said that, yeah, when a spirit wants to be in certain places, it shows that they, they're not perfect. They have impurities because they're still attached to physical things that we know in the spirit world isn't really going to matter. Then the spirits continue. What does one piece of earth represent more than another to an evolved spirit? Doesn't it know its soul will be re reunited with its loved ones 
even though their bones may be far apart. So they're, what they're saying here is that some people, they want to be, their families, they want their families to be buried together. So every time another member dies, it's in the same cemetery or very close by to the others. But in the spirit world, the evolved spirits know that they're going to be reunited no matter where they are, no matter what countries they are in, continents they are buried in, they're all going to be reunited. So it is the less, or not very less evolved, but they still have impurities, those who are picking certain places to be buried. And then there's a second part to this question, and it says, Should a gathering together the, the mortal remains of all the members of the family be considered meaningless so they're saying that stuff that the that that person has left behind that they died so so gathering their little things that they left behind should it be considered meaningless all those little things that are left behind those material little things and the spirits answered no it is a pious custom and a witness to the sympathy of loved ones so they're saying no it's not meaningless to save something if someone passed away and you keep a necklace or you keep a pill or something that meant a lot to them it's not it's not bad it's not meaningless and they continued if such if such gatherings mean little to spirits they are nonetheless useful to humans their memories are better concentrated so maybe even if keeping that doesn't help the person at all maybe it helps the humans to the people who are still in this corporeal existence, maybe it helps them cope better with whatever they're going through. Or maybe it becomes their good luck charm and they think it brings them luck. Or maybe it just keeps the memory of that person alive. And that's completely okay. Question 326. Is a soul that has returned to life as a spirit sensitive to the honors paid to its mortal remains. So, the, the soul that returned to life went back to the spirit world. Does this spirit have feeling towards the honors being paid to them on the corporeal world? Are they looking back and saying, are they emotional at all that, like, someone's keeping their necklace or their blanket or something like that to remember them by? And the spirits answered, When a spirit has already reached a certain degree of purification, it has no more earthly vanity, and it comprehends the fulfillity of all these things. Nevertheless, you should know that there are spirits who, in the first moments of death, take great satisfaction in the honors paid to them. Others become disturbed if they are seeing that their envelope is being forgotten, because they still hold on to some of the prejudices of the world. So some people, so they're saying that once you're more involved, you know that this isn't really, none of it really matters and they don't take it so personally. But for some spirits in the first moments of death, seeing people honoring them and loving them and mourning over them, kind of, it makes them happy. It feel, they feel satisfied that, okay, I did something right because I had these people that cared about me. And then others, they said, seem, they seem disturbed because they feel like they're being forgotten. Like these people are crying over them and they're going to be forgotten and that's it. So, some, so it really is a case-to-case -case basis depending on the spirit. 
Question 327. Do spirits ever watch their own burial? So do they watch themselves being buried? And the spirits answered, They frequently do, but sometimes they do not perceive what is happening if they are still in a state of confusion. So some spirits, and you know, like more evolved spirits, when after death, they kind of already, since they're more evolved, they're kind of used to this going to the spirit world transition. So in a few days, they'll be fine and they'll realize. But some spirits who are very stuck in this corporeal life and very materialistic, they're kind of, they're kind of stuck and they're confused because they can't think that they're anywhere except for the world. Or maybe if it was a sudden death and they don't think that that dying was never really in their train of thought and it just happened. So for them, they're pretty confused and they're not realizing they might be there, but they don't really understand what's happening because they're in, still in that state of confusion. Then there's a second part to this question and it says, do they feel flattered by a large gathering at their burial? So are they happy when a lot of people show up? And the spirits answered, more so or less so, according to the sentiment of the people gathered. So this is really important because it's not just about all the people there, but how those people are feeling. Maybe someone was really popular and knew everyone, but those people... They're not praying, they're not thinking good thoughts, they're just kind of there. But if there's a few people that really love them, that counts more to them than lots of people. But of course, it's if it's lots of people that really love them, then they will feel flattered, they'll feel happy. Question 328. Does the spirit attend the meetings of its heirs? So the heir, in this case, which... In a lot of cases, we think of heir as, like, if a king dies, like, the heir to the throne, like, the prince. But an heir is just, like, for a king, but just for anyone. If you die, then who's gonna take over? And for a lot of people, that's rather their spouse or their kids or some sort of family. So their heir is the people who are gonna take over their stuff and kind of be given all the stuff that is left behind by this person. So... Does the spirit attend the meetings of its heirs, of the people who are going to, like, kind of take over all of their stuff? And the spirits answered, Almost always. God wills it for its instruction and as punishment for guilty ones. It is there that the spirits judge what its heirs' declarations of affections are really worth. All sentiments become patent to the spirit and the disappointment it feels in seeing the greed of those who divide up the spoils make their true sentiments very clear. However, their time shall also come. So for one thing, this makes the spirits see who these people truly are, who these people they left truly, truly are. Like if they left it amongst their kids or they left it amongst a group of people. And these group of people, you see who's, greedy and who's trying to take everything and who's not sharing or who's not getting anything and you see the different things so you can see what's happening kind of from an outside point of view of who these people really are question 329 is the instinctive respect of people for the dead in all times and among all cultures 
the result of an intuition of a future existence. So he said, so the respect for the for people who have died all the time, like since history on this earth, like we know it as of right now, that we've always seen of people, of people honoring their dead, like like in ancient Egypt, they mummified them so that the spirit could come back to that same body. And there was many other beliefs, but we've always honored the dead. So is this because, is this an intuition that we know that there's something more? Like for that, it was, they thought the spirit was going to come into the same body, so they preserved the body. But, so there's many beliefs, but is it going to this belief of a future existence? And the spirits answered, it is not, it is its natural consequence. Without it, such respect would have no meaning. So yeah, that's basically why people honor their dead, because people believe that there's something more. Whether it's ancient Egypt and you think these people are coming back, or whether you think they're going to heaven and hell, you think of some, a lot of, most people think of something more. That's our, like they said, the natural consequence. So without it, why would we care? If they're dead, then they're just poof out of existence, so it wouldn't matter. But we, but every religion, every culture, most we should say, have this feeling, have this intuition that there is something more. So now that we've talked about disincarnating and going from the corporeal world to the spirit world, now we're going to talk about returning back to the corporeal life to try again to fix our our errors that we made and our mistakes so this is going to chapter seven of part two so we'll start the first few questions in the section and this part in the chapter is called preludes to the return so they're talking about before the return but not a lot before the turn just right before so question 330 do spirits know the time when they will have to reincarnate so do they know when they're going to reincarnate? And the spirits answered, They can sense it like a blind male, like a blind man who feels the fire he is approaching. He knows, they know they must return to a body, just as you know you must die someday, but without knowing when it will happen. So they know it's going to happen, and they know it has to happen, just like we know we're going to have to die, and we're going to go to the spirit world. But they don't know when, just like we don't know when we're going to die. And then there's a second part to this question, and it says, Is reincarnation, therefore, a necessity of spirit life, as death is a necessity to corporeal life? So is it necessary? Just like we know, everyone needs to die. No one's going to live for, for eternity in the corporeal life. So everyone has to die. It's a necessity. So is reincarnation a necessity in the spirit world? And the spirits simply answered, yes it is. Question 331. Do all spirits concern themselves with their approaching reincarnation? So do spirits get concerned when they're thinking, oh my God, just like when people are getting close to the age of dying and they're concerning themselves, oh my God, I'm gonna die, what's gonna happen when I die? But do people do that with reincarnation? Do they think, oh my god, I had to reincarnate, how's it going to be? And they start worrying, are they concerned? And the spirits answered, There are those who never give a thought, who do not even comprehend it. 
It depends on the degree of what their advancement is. For some, uncertain uncertainty about their future life is a punishment. So, like we said a million times already, it's about how evolved the spirits are, because if they're less evolved, they don't even understand reincarnation. So they're kind of not even paying attention. They don't even realize what's going to happen. They don't really think about it. But also for some, it might be not knowing might be a punishment for them, because maybe in one life, one when they were about to reincarnate, they picked, I want this, this, and this, this. And then maybe they mess it all up. So now, okay, now we're going to pick for you. And you're not going to really know exactly what's going to happen. Question 332. Can spirits hasten or delay the moment of their reincarnation? So can they delay their reincarnation, push it back so they don't have to go yet? Or can they make it faster? Can I want to reincarnate right, right now. And the spirits answered. They may hasten it through strong desire. They may also delay it if they recoil from the upcoming trial, since among spirits there are cowardly and indifferent ones. However, they do not delay it with impunity. They will suffer for it, like those who refuse the medicine that restores them to health. So, if they really, really feel like, I need to go right now, I'm so ready, they may hasten it, they may hurry up, and they may go a little earlier. And they also, they might be able to delay it for a little bit, but because some are cowardly, they're scared. They're saying, oh no, I'm going to go again and I'm going to mess up and they're scared. But some of, but like they said, is that they're going to, the more they wait, the more they're going to suffer because it's like they're saying, if you don't take the medicine, you're not going to get better. So they need to reincarnate to start getting better. That's their medicine for them. So they can't delay it forever because they're just going to be feeling bad until they actually do it. Question 333. If a spirit feels quite happy in an average situation among disincarnated spirits and has no ambition to evolve, could it prolong its errant state indefinitely? So if the spirit is like kind of, they're like, okay, I don't mind staying here and just I'm in a good situation, not perfect, but average, and I'm fine, and I don't mind just staying here. Can they just stay there forever, indefinitely? And the spirit said, no, not indefinitely, so you won't be there forever. Advancement is a necessity, and the, and spirits sense it sooner or later. All must evolve. It is in their destiny. So they can stay there for a while. They can prolong it prolong it for a while but eventually they are gonna have to get back on track and back on evolving because you can't just stay in the same spot forever so that's where we'll leave off today but before we leave off of course i'd like to read our message from the daily book of positive quotations by linda pacone for today's date july 18th charm a beauty is a woman you notice a charmer is one who notices you we admire the life of the party, the person who attracts others to his or her wit and wisdom. We envy the looker, the person who attracts others with his beauty or her beauty and physical attributions. But the people we really want to be around are the ones who show an interest in us. When they ask about our likes and dislikes, laugh at our jokes, compliment our appearances, we feel good about them and ourselves. 
I won't worry about whether I'm having a good time at, at an event. I'll see what I can do to help others enjoy themselves. I'm Bia. Thank you all for listening. Obsession. A true story. The unfolding of a very complex process of obsession, with its main roots planted deep in the mysterious soil of past incarnations, with many implications projected into the future of those involved. Hello again and welcome to another episode of Obsession. In today's episode, we're going to be reading Chapter 3, entitled, Bitter Thoughts. Let's now say a prayer first before we begin. Dear God, bless this opportunity to once again begin to read and study this work of so much importance which helps us to understand our connection to the spirit realm, our connection to our responsibility to open the door to the spiritual realm, to open the door of our hearts, not only to others around us, but to the good spirits and to Jesus and to God. Thank you, God, for the blessed opportunity of this reincarnation to exercise our free will so that we can, from our own accord, connect to your love and be guided by your light. Thank you, God, for this opportunity for all of us to be here together today. And so be it. Let's begin the reading of Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Bitter Thoughts Now, as effect always follows cause, if the latter is not found in this life, it must be in the preceding life, that is, it must be in a previous existence. Gospel according to Spiritism, Chapter 5, Item 6. Esther's insanity was a shocking tragedy to Colonel Santa Maria and his wife. After the first terrible days in which the unexpected blow seemed to block all logical reasoning, they were forced to face the brutal reality Esther was mad, and the illness that afflicted her offered slim chances of recovery. Despair hovered over the beaten family now, under extreme prostration. Time staggered by, crushingly and despairingly. The specialist who cared for the girl was himself baffled by the unusualness of the situation. The clinical picture was discouraging, her physical energies deteriorating gradually. She refused to eat and food had to be forced on her. Submitted to electrical shock treatment, she didn't react as expected. Instead, after the natural prostration following the convulsion, surprisingly, she would fall into a stronger fit of fierce delirium. Esther had been given a thorough, refined education. Her girlish, innocent lips had never uttered a foul word. 
Now uncontrolled, she blurted out abusive words against her father, as if she were being dominated by some degrading intelligent power, which manipulated her at will. The doctor had not been able to find any similar case in all the specialized case books he consulted. Her disposition varied periodically, as if different personalities presented themselves to her body. Since her response to electric shock was quite negative, narcotherapy was tried, but it also did not confirm the expectations. All types of treatment tried in that first month were proved useless, if not harmful. After holding a conference with one of his most distinguished colleagues, the doctor acknowledged his embarrassment to Colonel Santa Maria. The case was disconcerting and seemed strangely difficult, but he had not yet admitted failure. He explained that some patients would only show some improvement after a long, persistent treatment, sometimes extending over several months. Such explanation was meant to present honest information that should diminish the growing anxiety and undue expectation on the part of the parents who seemed to expect a prompt recovery, which the doctors thought unlikely to occur. Actually, Esther's case fitted in a quite different picture involving spiritual life, survival, and obsession. Unfortunately, however, the possibility of such a diagnosis would never occur to any orthodox doctor. So because of the limitations of traditional methods and academic prejudices, Esther could not be helped. Oppressed by manifold worries under the stress of an uncertainty as to the recuperation of her daughter's health, Colonel Santa Maria became a somber and withdrawn man, overwhelmed by grief. Deep inside his heart, he could not accept the situation. From whatever angle he analyzed the problem, it seemed entirely absurd. He had always been an honest man. His life was an excellent pattern of dedication to his country, and particularly to the army to which he had given the best of himself zealously. In, the, in his early youth, he had been sent to the military academy where he molded his character and developed a strong disciplined personality. A lover of truth, he became a champion of law, justice, and loyalty. Married twice, his second wife had given him the happiness which he had not been able to find with the first, who died suddenly, leaving him childless and lonely. Now at 56, he had considered himself a happy man until the onset of his daughter's strange illness. Donna Margarita, his wife, a beautiful woman and a sensitive poetess, had attended one of the best colleges in Rio where she had achieved excellent education. She could read French well and liked to discuss her favorite French authors. After her marriage, she got used to inviting friends and admirers of the romantic literature to her home where fine evening concerts were organized. Esther's infirmity had hit her brutally. The more she thought about it, the less she could explain to herself the pathological causes for the mystifying disease that afflicted her beloved daughter. As far back as she could trace her family, no one had ever presented any kind of mental disease. Her home was well-balanced, both economically and emotionally. Esther herself had never before shown the smallest shade of mental derangement, insecurity, or neurosis. On the contrary, her attitude had always revealed her as possessing a bright and alert mind and a pleasant personality. She had been popular at school, loved by classmates and teachers. She was considered a responsible and diligent student. A devoted daughter, she had always been a source of joy to her parents. 
So why? And she absorbed herself in bitter meditation, trying to understand. Since the day her daughter had been hospitalized, Donna Margarita had not seen the girl again. The doctor had not granted permission. She kept insisting, adding that she felt she would not be able to cope with the situation unless she could see the girl. To ease her tension, the doctor allowed her to glance at Esther from a distance, for he feared the girl would react negatively in receiving her relatives. It was a painful sight. The girl was sleeping heavily under strong sedatives, looking like a hibernating animal, her face discolored and contorted. The mother stood there looking, tears flowing uncontrollably. Colonel Santa Maria, unlike his wife, did not allow his sorrows to come out. Instead, he shut himself up, nursing his revolt silently. He felt as if caught in a strong, entangling net. A nightmare, he considered. Yes, an intolerable nightmare. He would soon snap out of it and find happiness again, a dweller in his home. Thus, he tried to escape reality, deluding himself with false hope. He could not conform to the fact that his daughter, the joyous little fairy that enchanted his garden of happiness, had to be confined to a madhouse. For a madhouse it was indeed, regardless of its high standards. Insanity, that degrading disease, virtually converted a human being into a beast. Such a hideous thing could not have happened to him, or worse still, to his beloved daughter, the very root of all his joys. And the tough officer who had fought bravely in the Second World War, never permitting himself to be moved by emotions, now often found himself weeping bitterly and hopelessly. In those difficult days, the couple would sometimes go for a walk to ease the inner pressure. Strolling along Copacabana Avenue with his wife, the colonel's mind would invariably focus on their child. He would give anything to rescue her, he thought. Anything. Arm in arm, they would walk off their solitude, trying to dodge time. Along the crowded, well-lit, world-famous Copacabana sidewalks, they felt abandoned and as prisoners of fate. Now and then, emerging from his fruitless, materialistic speculations, the colonel muttered, There is no God. The worst aspect of the problem, which contributed to deepen his depression, was the fact that apparently at the heart of his daughter's mental problem he stood as a hateful monster. His mere presence would rouse her aggressiveness. As his wife had done before, he also tried to convince the doctor to let him see the girl, hoping that in doing so he would be able to mitigate his sorrows. The doctor, however, denied his permission. The father was greatly impressed when later he learned the girl had sensed his intentions and had been still more upset, more disturbed. If she dies, he told himself, I'll kill myself. This thought seemed to comfort him because he entertained the vain idea that death was the end of life. He believed that once the exhausted cells ceased to function, thought, reasoning, and consciousness would disintegrate altogether. The colonel's heart could not be appeased because misfortune grows into gloom when resentment is added to it. The systematic rejection of the plain facts of life keeps us oscillating between apathy and aggressiveness. Moreover, pride, when forced out of its vanity nest by divine laws, reacts violently, poisoning reality in such a degree that we are led to think of suicide not as a cowardly act, what it is in fact, but as the only solution, 
Ignoring that once committed, it will reveal a disappointing reality in the beyond, where suicides enter as great criminals. The only way for a man to show strength is under the test conditions of a deep moral suffering, out of which he should emerge as a winner of himself. But it demands a great spiritual effort, humility, and a strong faith. Colonel Santa Maria and his wife were used to high social prestige and flattery. They had never before considered the possibility of suffering. Their religious beliefs never warned them that theirs was not a life set apart in permanent laughter. Now they were beginning to understand that sorrow and grief were not exclusively for the rabble. And because they had lived absolutely to themselves, they were now forced to break their personal selfish shell and come out to consider other important aspects of life once deliberately ignored. Well, in this chapter, we really do see here how the Santa Marias are really escaping their spiritual reality. Their pride is blinding them because they're not aware of what's more important around them and within them, their spiritual nature, the spiritual nature of themselves and the spiritual nature of the universe and of everything around them. Remember in previous chapters, we learned how uh, Colonel Santa Maria was used to mechanical prayers without really reflecting on the consequences of his actions. And we can see here more and more in this chapter how used the uh, Santa Marias are to the achievements that they've gotten in their lives, to the lifestyle, to the clubs that they've joined, to the uh, luxuries that they have, to the people that they meet who are attracted to and connected to that lifestyle that they lead in a wealthy section of Rio de Janeiro. In here, it seems that their material life is everything, that it's perfect, and that this is exactly what everybody should aspire to. But we can see here how the divine laws and the law of action and reaction can break the Santa Marias out of that pride and vanity almost in a split instant. One evening can basically tear apart the illusions of materiality. And there's an important opportunity for spiritual awakening there. But we need to look at how the psychology of this works. And that's what's so beautiful about this chapter, because it shows us that inevitably, it seems, most of us would probably experience if we were like the Santa Marias and this happened to us, our daughter becomes insane and the life that we used to lead with all the illusions of the material world suddenly starts crumbling, we would experience depression. And that's again what we see here. It reminds me of that Robert Foss poem, Should I Take the Well-Worn Road or the Road Less Traveled? The Well-Worn Road is the road that everyone else around them would take, the road of continuing their lifestyle, continuing to entertain, continuing to be a beacon of the social scene and the community. But after this event has happened to their daughter, things have shaken up so much that now they're starting to realize that, hey, you know, our daughter is insane and has basically stained our social reputation 
it's no longer possible as easy for them to follow that road. So they have a choice here. They may be able to repair those social relations. It doesn't seem like it's impossible. But the depression that they're experiencing is an opportunity because we experience depression when we're at these intersection points, going towards the direction that the society and the social scene would want us to go to, or going towards the path of spirituality. Jesus has taught us the importance of developing our spiritual muscles and strength to go through the narrow door of spiritual awareness and awakening instead of just the wide door of materialism. In the Gospel according to Spiritism, in a, in a section entitled The Narrow Door, the good spirits interpret the Gospel in the following way. They say, Wide is the door to damnation, because evil passions are numerous, and the vast majority of humanity follows this pathway. That of salvation, or we could even say spiritual awakening, is narrow because humans are obliged to exert great control over themselves in order to dominate their evil tendencies if they want wish to pass through. And this is something that few are resigned enough to do. It complements the maxim, many are called, but few are chosen. And in this, we might recognize something very important. That is that although few are chosen in this pathway of spiritual awakening, we can look upon an event such as what's happened to the Santa Maria's daughter as an opportunity for spiritual growth. That many people may not have be blessed with this awakening. So we can look upon these events that happen in our lives and issues that happen with us psychologically or mentally as blessings. How often do we think about that? In the normal day-to-day society, the idea of saying that a mental illness is a blessing is a strange, uh, a strange statement, but look upon it as something that could give us an opportunity for spiritual growth. Because remember that there's a reason There's a law of action and reaction. There's a reason we experience these mental illnesses. And looking upon them as opportunities for our spiritual development may well be the the path that will lead not only to um, eliminating or getting rid of the mental illness, but even more importantly, towards a greater happiness than one could ever receive from the material world. The good spirits also teach us something else important in the gospel according to spiritism. They say that the earth is in a, we're not yet in a, in a regeneration phase. And so as a result, the door is always going to be wider on the side of materialism and ignorant tendencies that are spiritually unaware or pathways that lead to spiritual slumber. But it's important to realize that there is that narrow that narrow door is following the pathway of Jesus. So we're going to leave ourselves with this question that we hope will be answered in future chapters. How much do the Santa Marias understand their spiritual nature? How much have they learned about themselves, who they truly are? How much will they learn or have they learned or will they learn 
about the laws, the spiritual laws that govern all of our lives. That's something we're going to look forward to in another chapter of the book Obsession.